The first Lord's Day of Advent, hope. The season of Advent is usually seen as a time of excitement and celebration. While these emotions are grounded in the truth of the gospel, this season is also a season of anticipation. Before the birth of Jesus, God's people awaited the coming of the Messiah. Israel's hope of cosmic and complete redemption lay in God's promises of a coming Messiah, a Christ. On this first Lord's Day of Advent, we light the first purple candle as a reminder of this hope in the cosmic redemption coming through the Messianic King, as we read in Isaiah 2, 1 through 5. (laughs) The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. candle of hope reminds God's people of their hope in God's covenant promises, the coming Messiah. The church has realized the fulfillment of these promises in Jesus, the Christ, born to establish his kingdom and redeem the cosmos. And now our hope remains in the covenant promises of God as we await the complete restoration of his creation when Jesus returns in glory and establishes his eternal kingdom in Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. The Apostle Paul reminds us of our hope. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Romans 8, 24 through 25. The Testament scripture reading is found in, my, um, in Micah chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. And it's on page seven, 778 in your few Bibles. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old. From ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall bring their peace. When the Assyrians come into our land and treads in our palaces, and we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword, 
and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our borders. The New Testament reading is found in Romans 1, um, chapter 1, 1 through 6, page 939. Paul, a servant of Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God when he promised beforehand, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations, including you who are, called to be, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. The Lord in prayer. Father, as we come into your house this morning, calm our hearts from the busyness. May our souls find rest in you alone. Lord, speak to us this morning through the power of your Spirit, through the reading and the proclamation of your Word. For it is only by you and through you that things come into existence, that hearts are changed, that the dead are raised. Lord, you know each heart in this room. You know where our thoughts, our thoughts run. You know the problems, whether we discuss them or we run from them. You know our deepest needs. You know our brokenness. You know our shame. Lord, we pray for those in our congregation that are sick, who are weary, who are anxious, who are lonely. May they be filled with joy at the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus. May you strengthen this congregation to be a light of wisdom and of truth, of faithfulness in this county. We pray for our country. and its leaders, Lord, that you may guide them, that they may seek your truth, 
that they may seek godly justice, godly love and faithfulness. We pray for your church. May it continually expand as far as the curse is found. May you protect the feet of those who bring the word. Give courage to those planting churches. Give strength to the missionaries who leave everything for you. And give us hope as we go into our workplaces, our homes, our schools, knowing that you are with us, knowing that you will never leave us. May this change us for your glory. Amen. O little town of Bethlehem. This song has been sung since 1968 when it was written by Philip Brooks, an Episcopal minister in Boston, Massachusetts. This song has been resung retuned, remixed hundreds of times, including but not limited to Elvis, Nat King Cole, Frank Sinatra, from Kenny Rogers to Mariah Carey to 98 Degrees, and Toby Keith, Willie Nelson, Stephen Curtis Chapman. A song sung for over a century, O Little Town of Bethlehem. Look at its text. What stands out to you when you read over it rather than when you sing it? What do you notice? For me, it was the repeated implicit theme. Christ, the Messiah, is born while the world was asleep. In a little town of Bethlehem, in the silence of the night, he was not born to the chorus of people singing his praise. He was born in a manger outside of a little city. To two poor parents who barely had enough for an offering at his circumcision. This is a song that is sung in countries all in churches all across our country. I don't know how popular it is outside of our country. And surely we will hear it other than this morning again before Christmas. And although this has been sung for a century, its timelessness speaks of the birth of Jesus 2,000 years ago. Yet, as we'll see this morning, this song also reminds us 
of 700 years even before Christ was born of a little town of Bethlehem. When the promised one of God, the Messiah, was promised to the people of God. Maybe you don't know the passage, the chapter and verse, but if you've been in church long enough, you've heard Micah 2, Micah 5, 2. But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, for you shall from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. This is a prophecy. Micah is a prophet proclaiming to the people of God the Messiah is coming. And he's coming to a little town of Bethlehem. Now, some of you might be uncomfortable with prophecy. Some of you might think it's an old parlor trick. Or maybe that there were redactors who took future prophecy after it had already happened and placed it back into Scripture to make it look as though it came before it did. But this was 700 years before the birth of Jesus. Clearly, those who are uncomfortable with prophecy are misguided because God used his prophets to foretell what was going to happen. What's going to happen? God's promises will come true. Some of you might also mistake prophecy for some type of quasi-psychic reading, focusing merely on predicting future events before they come to pass. But yet we will see that this also is misguided, because the prophets of old were not just focused about telling futuristic beginnings. That misses the point of what the prophets were there to do. The prophets' main focus was always to call God's people to live faithfully as the people of God. Think about it. You're living amongst the people of God who claim to be the people of God. Far-fetched, I know. And a prophet who claims to have been directed by God comes to you tells you what is going to happen in the future so that you might align as God's people. What would you do? My hope is that you would change what you were doing to align yourself with the law of God. This is a prophet's primary focus, to change the people of God into being the image of God, for the purpose of God. And this is what we see over and over again in the major and the minor and the other prophets of the Old Testament. They are calling God's people to live faithfully to God's covenant promises. And God provides some future prediction text to give them hope for their current situation. He has not left them. He is still with them. But if we only look at the prophets 
for what they say about the future, we will miss out on the moral implications for the people of God. God's promises will come true through his people. I just gave you an entire seminary class at half a page. And this brings us back to the passage of Micah 5. Micah is telling the people of God who are in current distress. You are in distress because you have been faithless to God's covenant. But God is faithful. You broke your covenant vows and there are consequences. But God will be faithful. And what we will see in this passage over and over and over again is that God promises to be faithful. Do you hear that? Even in our sin, even in our covenant unfaithfulness, God is still faithful to his promises. In this passage, I want us to look at three things. We will look at our distress, our deliverance, and our duty. If you have an ESV study Bible, you've made a very good decision. This Bible is published by Crossway, and John and I believe that this is actually the best English translation of the scriptures. But with this Bible, you have much more than just the Bible. Not that you need more than the Word of God, but in it you have a full commentary of every passage, of every book, of the entire scriptures. Given by faithful men and women who have devoted their lives to studying God's Word. And if you have an ESV study Bible, the book of Micah has, given, has been given very close attention. It has three pages just to introduce you to the book of Micah. And you know what I always say. Context is king. Some of you know it, yes. Context is king. What the three pages of introductory notes tell us is the context of Micah. Who wrote it? When was it written? What are its major themes? What's going on? What's an outline? The theme the ESV study Bible gives of Micah is that Micah is a book of judgment and forgiveness. The Lord, the judge who scatters his people for their transgression and sins, is also a shepherd king who is faithful to his covenant, gathers protects and forgives his people. So that's the theme of the entire book. My argument, my instruction this morning is that this theme is specific to these five verses. God is a God of judgment and forgiveness. He is the judge who scatters his people for their transgressions, but he is also their shepherd king who defends them and who leads them by the strength of Yahweh. And we see this in verse 1. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. 
Here, God's people are in distress. The Assyrian army is threatening to destroy Jerusalem, the holy city of God, where the temple was, where God dwelt among his people. And why are they in distress? Because of their corruption. Because of the lip service that they have paid to Yahweh, their God. Because they thought if they brought sacrifices for the sake of sacrifices, God would love them. They professed the promises of God were what they truly believed. But by their actions, they showed they actually didn't believe in this God of love and faithfulness. They believed in themselves and their own works. And this is where we find ourselves this morning, isn't it? We have come this morning, the first day of Advent as God's people, and yet we find ourselves in distress because we have not been faithful to God's promises in us. Because as we've confessed in our prayer of confession, we have tried to take something that is perfect in Christ and somehow added to it, making it better. Thinking that God actually just wants us to try more. But what God wants is our hearts. What our God wants is to know him more deeply. Because once we know Yahweh, everything about our lives changes and we become more like Yahweh. As God's people today, sometimes we have these tendencies, these same tendencies that the people in the book of Micah had. We try to stand on our own two feet. But if the Messiah cannot do it, we cannot do it. And what scriptures tell us over and over and over again, we do what we believe. Judah is a southern kingdom of a divided nation of Israel. And they believed that what they did earned their salvation. And this caused distress. Israel had forgotten their story. And we've seen this in a movie before. A little girl from a small town makes it big in a big city. And she forgets her past. And then one time, one Christmas, she goes back home and meets the old boyfriend. And all of a sudden remembers who she was. Yes, I'm, I'm giving you the, the theme of Sweet Home Alabama. She had forgotten her past. She forgot who she was. And it took something from her past to remind her of how she had gotten there. You see, Israel had forgotten what God had told them in Deuteronomy 7. It was not because you were more in number than the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of the people. They wanted to remember themselves as being the great kings of Israel. 
But what they forgot, their past, because Yahweh had saved them from nothing. God had redeemed them out of nothing to be his people. They were suffering humiliation from a foreign people, Assyrians, who were unfaithful, and they were defenseless because they had forgotten who they were. How are you in distress this morning because you've forgotten who you are in Christ? How are you distressed this morning because you've forgotten that there's nothing you can do to add to your salvation. There's nothing that you can do that makes you more a son or a daughter in Christ. Redemption is here. Your salvation is secure. This distress happens when we forget. God's promises will happen. Because he is faithful. And what would happen if this was the last verse of the chapter? People just left in their distress. Sad story. But then Micah speaks of the forgiveness that we receive. You see, Yahweh is the one who scatters the people in judgment and trans- for their transgressions and sin. But Yahweh is also the one that will raise up a shepherd, a king, a Davidic figure who in covenant faithfulness will gather, protect, and forgive his people. The judgment is coming for Israel, and they deserved it. Yet what they didn't deserve is God's redemption through his anointed. His people are waiting for Jesus. For this is what we see in the next passage. Verse 2, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. Micah 5 begins with our distress because of our sin, but Micah does not leave us without hope because he speaks of our deliverance in the Messiah. God's anointed one will deliver his people. There are 88 towns in the United States with the name of Washington. Iowa has four of them, Washington, North Washington, Washington Mills, and Washington Prairie. There's no town in Tennessee bearing the name of Washington. There are 41 towns in this country that bear the name Springfield. There are 35 Franklins, 35 Lebanons, and if you're from Missouri, it's Lebanon but we don't know anything about mispronouncing town names here in Fayette County. There are 30 Clintons and 31 Greenvilles. However, Tennessee is the only state that spells Greenville with four E's and not three. 
As my family and I drove home from Thanksgiving yesterday, here are the name of towns that we saw. London, Paris, Knoxville, Clarksville, and Jacksonville. If you don't know, those are all towns in Arkansas. Paris is a little different. And if you would search for things in Oakland, I promise you Oakland, Tennessee is the, not the first thing that Google brings up. And here in this passage, we clearly see Micah is depicting a future event in a Bethlehem that seems that no one has known. For it has to say what district Bethlehem is found in because it's such a small town. Back in Joshua 15, when the, the cities were being named and allotments were given, Bethlehem is not named out of the 115 cities given to Judah. It is insignificant. But here, Micah, you don't have to be significant to make an impact. You would think that this king would come from Jerusalem, for that's where the line of David lived, in the palace next to the temple of God. But Yahweh says he will come from Bethlehem. For Bethlehem played a significant role in the Old Testament. It is where Rachel and Jacob were both buried. It is where the love story of Ruth and Boaz, her kinsman redeemer, happened. But this call for Bethlehem should also remind us of 1 Samuel. When Samuel was told, to reject Saul as their king and go and anoint the son of Jesse, a Bethlehemite. For I have provided myself a king from his sons. And then again in 1 Samuel 17, 12. Now David was the son of an Ephraimite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. But here's what's significant about David. David was not the prized son. When Samuel went to find Jesse's sons, Jesse walked all of his sons in front of him. None of them were David. He forgot about David because he was shepherding the sheep. But Yahweh said, no, these are not him. Bruce Waltke, an Old Testament scholar, said this about Micah 5 verse 2. Amazingly, God bypassed Jerusalem, the city of Zion. Rather, as the doorway through which the promised Messiah would step forth onto the center stage of salvation history, Yahweh chose the same portal through which David entered to play a significant role for the sacred history. The common cradle suggests the connection between them and the fact that the Messiah represents the second David. And between them and the fact that the Messiah, oh, I read that, Messiah, the second David, so a fresh start in salvation history through the dynasty to whom God had given his eternal covenant. As out of Saul's death and Israel's humiliation under the Philistine, David commenced Israel's former golden age. And now in the humiliation of David's household. Because the kings were corrupt. A greater David would come. Originating from the same lowly 
city, in Israel's future, an eternal golden age was to come. David's line had failed because they were unfaithful to the covenant. But God's promises will come true because God is faithful. God had promised David an eternal dynasty. And it came through poor Joseph and Mary in Bethlehem. Outside of an inn that was so insignificant, we don't even have the name of it. In a manger where the shepherds came. But in this, Micah tells the people of God to find hope. Because the king, the shepherd king is coming. And he will rule. Over what? Over just Israel, right? No, that's not what he says in verse 4. He shall be great to the ends of the earth. Jesus is David's greater son. God took what was lowly, and that's what we do, right? We take the most insignificant people. We take the insignificant experiences that we have and make them the the main thing. No, God took what was insignificant and made it great because he is true to his promises. And we see this picture of this great shepherd who is coming. How does this change Israel? They're to come living faithfully to the covenants of God because the Lord is faithful. His promises will come true in the anointed, in the Messiah, in Jesus. And we have to ask ourselves, which shepherd do we follow? Do we follow this insignificant shepherd whose kingdom will reign over the globe? Cosmic redemption. Or do we follow the desires of our own heart as Israel is doing? Micah warns the people, you profess that you believe in David's covenant God. Yet you preach other than what you believe. This is what Isaiah and Isaiah 2 and Micah and Micah 4 are both proclaiming. You must walk faithfully in God's covenants according to his laws. If you are true Israel who proclaim faith in Jesus, you will follow after the good shepherd. And the great news about this good shepherd is that our salvation is not dependent upon our own strength. For the good shepherd laid down his life for his sheep in John 10. Our only hope, 
the only hope for wayward sinners, the only hope for humanity and for the cosmos is for God to send his son to pay the penalty while we are in distress. We might try our best, but it's not good enough. Just as the kings of Israel and Judah tried their best to be like David. It is to Jesus that we look for our strength. And it's interesting here, here in this passage, we see where does his strength come from? Where does the Messiah's strength come from? From Yahweh. From the name of the Lord. And when we see this this phrase, name of the Lord, this is how we know God. He revealed his name so that people might have a relationship with him. Yahweh gives the Messiah the strength, the ability to stand. And the shepherd points us back to Yahweh. It's an eternal circle. The Father sends the Son. The Son sends us back to the Father through the power of the Spirit. And we don't deserve it. But God is faithful to his covenant promises. We are to walk humbly, to seek kingly justice, to love as God loved us. This is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus came to do, to point us back to the Father who loves us. He came to be our shepherd so we shall not have any want. He restores us. He leads us on paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will not fear, for he is with us to comfort us. And we shall dwell in the house of the Lord. This is the assurance of salvation in Christ, for he is our shepherd. And God chose us, not because we were great and mighty, but God chose us because he loves us. We are found in distress that is overcome by our deliverance in Jesus. Yet this is not, again, where Micah 5 leaves us. It is a great picture of the story of God's redemption in Jesus, the Messiah, but the story gets even bigger. Read verses 5 and 6 with me. And he, the Messiah, shall be our peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our places, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances, and he shall deliver us from the Assyrians. When he comes into our land and treads within our border. The number seven is a number of completion in Hebrew poetry. So here we see that God will raise up with, from his people seven shepherds, eight princes. Eight is better than seven. If seven is completion, eight is one more. And what does God call us to do? 
He calls us to go into Assyria because that's where his kingdom is. He calls us to go into our culture. He calls us to go into the world because that's where his kingdom is. On the way back from Arkansas, I was thinking about this sermon. And I finally told Jessica, I don't know how I can talk about the kingdom of God where they don't just shut me out. Because I talk about the kingdom of God all the time. But I talk about the kingdom of God all the time because it's on every page of scripture. Christ is the shepherd king. And what does he call us to do once we come into the kingdom of God? He calls us to be vice shepherds. Vice regents, as Adam was in the garden. Christ is our peace. And that leads us to our duty as believers, as God's people, receivers of the covenant promises of God. This is the storyline of all of Scripture. God found us in distress. He redeemed us by Jesus, and then he sent us back into the world to extend the kingdom of God as far as the curse is found. This is why we read Romans 1, 1 through 6. We were called by God in his grace, by the Davidic king, the son of God, who received power in the resurrection so that we might go to the nations and proclaim the gospel. This is why Jesus came. This is the power of the resurrection. This is what we remember in Advent. He came, empowered his people to go into the world, and now we wait. Because he will return. And as John always says, it's going to be a grand party. We read this as our Advent reading from Isaiah 2. But Isaiah 2 is actually quoting Micah 4. This is, this is the picture and the hope of God's people. Remember, the prophet is proclaiming the truths of Scripture to change the people of God to becoming faithful people of God. And if this doesn't want you to align with the covenants of God, you don't understand the gospel because this is what the prophet proclaims. It shall come to pass in the later day, latter days. The mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established on the highest of mountains, and it shall be lifted above, above the hills, and the people shall flow to it. And many nations shall come to it and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. From out of Zion shall come forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And in verse 5, for all the peoples walk in each of the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever. This is what will happen when Jesus comes back. And guess what? God is faithful to his covenant promises. He is coming back. And it's going to be a party. God found us in our distress. He delivered us through the Messiah. And he gave us the duty as his shepherds, as his vice regents over all creation, to go and proclaim the gospel. Because his kingdom is to the ends of the earth. And then we will feast 
at the wedding feast of the Lamb. Amen.